Well, if you'll take a copy of God's Word and turn to Galatians. Galatians, we're taking a break from our series on assurance uh, to focus on the primary theme of the Reformation. Turn to Galatians, if you will, as we talk about um, the doctrine of justification by faith, or justification technically by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, You know, historically in Protestant churches, it has been the practice to stand for God's reading, the reading of God's Word. So for this day, for for Reformation Day, if you're able, let's stand together as I read uh, Galatians chapter 2. Let's stand. This is Galatians 2, verses 15 through 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be the transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law... Then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the good news that it brings to us this morning that our salvation has been accomplished by Christ. We pray now as we look at your word that you would grant anointing to the preacher and hearer alike. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You know, when we face problems in our lives, there are often a myriad of solutions. There's often more than one solution for a problem. Uh, You know, when you go to the doctor and he tells you you have high cholesterol, he gives you lots of options, right? You can eat oatmeal, you can exercise, or you can take one of the dozens of medicines that seem to be advertised during football games. You have options. Or the mechanic calls you and says, hey, your car is broken down a lot of times he's going to give you several options, right? The cheap option, the better option, and the time to get a new car kind of option. Um, We might have viable options for problems that face us, but you know there's one problem that is universal to us all that only has two options. One is right and one is wrong. One brings life and the other brings death. One brings heaven and the other brings hell. The the problem that we all face, no matter where you're born from, what color your skin is, what language you speak, what age of the world you were born in, our one problem is that we are guilty before God. We have inherited the original sin from Adam and Eve, and therefore we are born into this world as sinners, and we soon give evidence to the fact that we are sinners because we sin. We heap on to the guilt, our original guilt we have inherited by our own guilt, by transgressing God's law and what we do and what we have left undone as we sin against God and as we sin against others. We have a problem. 
with only two solutions. One brings life, one brings death. How shall we remedy such a problem? How shall the record of our sins be dealt with? How can we have the righteousness that is required by God for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God? How can we be in a right relationship with God and have eternal life? The technical word for this, you see in your text this morning, focusing on verses 15 and 16, is the word justification. The moment in which we are made right before God, where He declares us righteous in His sight and our sins forgiven. Without this justification, we will spend eternity in hell. How can our problem be remedied? There are two solutions. One brings life, one brings death. One is true, one is wrong. There are only two options that are presented here in our text. And the first is by works of the law, works of the law. And the second is belief or faith in Christ. I don't want to keep you in suspense. Let me tell you the right one. It's faith in Christ. It's not works of the law. It's not works of the law. It's a simple message. The gospel is simple. It's not simplistic. It is simple. It is so simple that any child of the youngest age can understand it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say whoever works hard, whoever keeps the law, whoever does good works, that person will have eternal life. No, it says whoever believes in Christ, in the only begotten Son whom the Lord gave, will not perish, will not go to hell, but have eternal life, will be therefore justified before God, his sins forgiven and declared righteous before God. The problem is there was a period in the church in which the jewel of the simple gospel had become muddied, had become unclear. It was like taking a gorgeous diamond ring and and putting slush all around it so you could only occasionally get a, a glimpse of the beauty that is the unadulterated, pure gospel that Christ does it for us and not our works. It was a sad time. For centuries. It was called the Dark Ages for a lot of reasons. But the darkest of the reasons is that the gospel shone very dimly from the pulpits throughout the Christian world. The medieval Roman Catholic Church taught that in order to be saved or to stay saved, you had to be a good person, obey the law of God, and earn your right to enter heaven. That's problematic. That's very problematic. Lost was the pure gospel. Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. It's all been taken by the Lord on the cross. And instead, the medieval Roman Catholic Church has set up a system in which you had to either save yourself or stay saved or get yourself out of so many thousands of years in purgatory through confessing your sins directly to a priest in your local parish who may not know what the Bible says because he doesn't know Latin. And then he's going to give you prescriptions on a legal, on a prescription pad. Here are the things you need to go do in order to make right for the sins that you have just confessed to me, which may include giving money or going to so many masses or uh, Eucharist services at the church 
or helping others, or saying so many Hail Marys, or Our Fathers. And only then, when you would come back to Him and and tell Him what you have done, would He declare you forgiven. It was a terrible system. And removed from the pews was any sort of assurance of pardon, that if I were to die today, I would go and be with Jesus forever, because you never knew if you'd done enough. And then the Lord, always having a remnant, the truth existing somewhere in the church, raised up generations of godly priests, theologians, and monks who went ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the source, back to the very Word of God. And Martin Luther, as he was struggling with what he had been taught as a good Augustinian monk, which was a good order uh, who believed more strongly in the grace of God, what he had been taught then as he, as he read Scripture and read that, that the gospel is the power of salvation, not by doing X, Y, and Z. And as he began to pour over the words of Scripture, he began to see that man is saved by faith alone and not by doing good works. And he read on the pages of Galatians 2 that no man shall be justified by works of the law. And so he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, meaning it only to be a way to to tell people something he'd like to have a public discussion about, not meaning to tear the church apart, not meaning to, to lead a division. He was looking to reform the church, not pull away from it. But the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval period, wouldn't have it. And the Lord, therefore... Emboldened men like Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Bootser and Bucer and Melanchthon and others who brought back to God's people the great news that salvation comes through Jesus, faith in Him, and not by what you can do. Paul says here very clearly that no man will be justified by the law, by works of the law. Three times in two verses, verses 15 and 16, he says, no one's going to be justified by doing these things. No one. He's real clear on that. Three times in two verses. And three times in two verses, he says you'll only be saved by faith in what Jesus has done for you. If you say three things in a conversation, it means something. If you say three things in two verses in just, what, two or three sentences, you know it's important. Martin Luther said the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls, this is it. John Calvin would later say that justification by faith alone is the main hinge upon which religion turns. If you take the hinge off of a door, it's no longer a door. If we get this wrong, we don't go to heaven. It's as simple as that. There are two options, heaven or hell. Justification by what Christ has done, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, or by works of the flesh, works of the law. What does Paul mean here by works of the law? I think generally refers to any sort of effort at self-salvation. Any way to make myself seem acceptable to God. He says this this isn't going to work. That's not how it works. How how do we see this in our lives and in the church of all ages? I think the first way we see it is by morality. Now, we are called to be moral people. We're called to obey God's law, to resist sin, and to put on purity and holiness. These things are good, but it's a terrible foundation in order to save yourself before God. 
We can't save ourselves from the fires of hell. In the letter to the Galatians, Paul was writing against a group of people called the Judaizers. You won't find that word in Galatians, but that's historically what they've been called. They were, they were like the Pharisees, and they, they believed that in order to be saved, you not only had to believe in Jesus, you had to do a little extra too, that what Jesus had done was not quite enough. You had to add to it with your good works. In order to truly be, good, be saved, you had to be a good person. When we think of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, this was their message as well. They had redefined sin, and they had put it in different classes where you had, you know, small sins, and then you had mortal sins. And as long as you stayed in the lower category, you were okay, but if you committed one of the tops, it, 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 was, it was a ticket straight to hell. You had to be a good person. This isn't just a a problem in the past, isn't it? It's a prevalent issue today. It's common for people to think they're going to heaven because they haven't committed the really bad sins, quote-unquote, right? They believe that fundamentally people are good and God would never send a basically good person to hell. There are a lot of problems with this view. The first is that, you know what, I'm not good. And apart from Christ, neither are you. The biblical view of man is very clear. It's very clear. The problem with man is much bigger than we realize. Romans 3, 10 through 12 puts it very clear. None is righteous. Not just most people. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. We read that earlier in Isaiah 53 in our call to worship. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I'm not a good person. Not apart from what Jesus has done in my heart. The only way that we can see ourselves morally good before God is if we reinterpret the law. This is what the Pharisees had done. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, in a lot of ways, is meant to counter the teaching of the Pharisees. And they had changed the law and taken our hearts out of it. You know, if you don't actually kill somebody, then you haven't committed murder. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, look, if you've had unrighteous anger against your neighbor, then you are guilty of murder in the fires of hell. And he says, you know, the Pharisees will say, well, if I haven't actually committed adultery, then I haven't transgressed the seventh commandment. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you've had lust in your heart, you've already broken the seventh commandment. You've already committed adultery. The law not only looks to our actions, but to our motives. Not only what we say and do, but also what we think. Our problem is very real, and and we can't save ourselves by being good. Although sometimes it helps when we compare ourselves to others, right? What I like to call comparative morality. That as long as I'm better than somebody else, I'm okay. Um, I like to speed on the interstate. Uh... Not too much, right? Not too much. Uh, I'm a 75 kind of guy. Now, if you're on the interstate and you're going 75 and someone zooms past you at 77, you say, man, that guy's going fast. He shouldn't be speeding. Now, he might be doing worse than you are, but guess what? You're both guilty. You're both guilty. And your problem really isn't his sin. Your problem is your own Being a good person doesn't work 
because we're not good people. That's why we have the problem of sin. James tells us if we've transgressed one law, we've transgressed them all. My friends, you can't go to heaven by being a good person. This is what the Pharisees in the first century were teaching. This is what the medieval Catholic Church was teaching as well. If you're, just, if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. The second thing that uh, I think is con- contained within this idea of works of the law um, is, is good works. Good works. We are called to do good works. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. 8 and 9 tell us that we aren't saved by our works or saved by faith, which is a gift of God. But then verse 10 tells us that God has created us for something. He's created us for good works. Good works are meant to follow from our salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. But it is a way in order to be saved. It's a terrible system. I once was talking to a group of about 100 folks, and not, not y'all, um, and I asked them, how many good works does it take to make up for one sin? And you know, we had, they had a real debate. I mean, people were feisty. It was one. No, no, it's not one. Everybody knows it's not one. It's eight. No, I mean, <laughs> that's too many. It's not eight. And they finally agreed on two. A far cry from eight, right? Um, it took two good works in order to make up for one sin. It just doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't work like that. But one of the most common misconceptions is that uh, when we get to the judgment day and God has this great scale and on one side he puts our, our good works and on one side he puts our bad deeds and as long as our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds then we'll be okay. But my friends, it doesn't work like that. The scale is broken. That's not how it works. Good deeds don't make up for bad deeds. Even when we do what is right, it has, they have no merit in and of themselves to make up for other deeds that we've done. And when your children obey you, it's not making up for all the other times they've, they've not obeyed you right. When we obey, we're only doing what we were supposed to anyway. The medieval Roman Catholic Church taught that if you did this, you had to do these things in order to make up for that, in order to regain your right standing with God. It doesn't work like that. Why? The thing is, that our, our, even our good works are tainted with sin. Are you a Milo's person or a Red Diamond person? You know, when it comes to sweet tea. They're both good. I'm a Red Diamond guy. Now, Milo's is pretty good. But Red Diamond, it has something in it that just makes it taste so good. It's pure. It's just water, tea, and sugar. Sometimes if you're living on the wild side, you might put a little lemon in there to cut down on the sweetness. But man, it tastes good. Now what happens if you were to take a gallon of pure, good red diamond sweet tea and just put the smallest bit of strychnine, the smallest bit of rice and poisoning, just one drop. It's not much. What does it do to that pure red diamond tea? It doesn't just render it unhelpful, it's deadly. And that is what's wrong with our good works. We cannot offer them up to God because they are tainted with our sin, with selfish motives, with wanting other people to know it, with doing it for what it make, how it makes us feel instead of out of love of God and neighbor. Even if it's just that much. We can't make up for bad works 
with good ones. There's no merit in them. I remember in junior high science class, I had a great teacher, Mr. Jones, Tommy Jones, great teacher. And he loved to give extra credit. And you could do all these sorts of extra little assignments at night. They didn't take much work. And, and he'd give you a little uh, photocopied piece of paper that had been copied you know, thousands of times. And you could barely read it anymore. But all that mattered was the plus four, the plus ten, or the plus two. You know, that it was extra credit. And you could hang on to these things. These things were precious. And he wrote them down so you, you, know, you couldn't go copying yourself. Uh, and, and when it came time for a test, if there was a question you just blew... You could staple one of those things at the top of your test, and it would make up for that, uh, that question. It doesn't work like that with our good works. We don't staple our plus four good works to our sins and say, here, God, it's all right. I think the third, though, within this idea of the works of the law is religious activity. Religious activity. Now, it's good to be involved in church, period. Where do you find out about Jesus? In the church. Where do you get to worship Jesus? In the church. Where do you grow? Uh, how do we encourage one another, each other? In the church. How do we help one another? In the church. How do we bear each other's burdens? In the church. Where do we have access to the sacraments and of the Lord's Supper and, and to uh, uh, baptism? In the church. But as a way to be saved, it's a terrible system. The Pharisees said, hey, as long as you're circumcised on the eighth day and don't, uh, don't walk more than 2,000 cubits or 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. Um, as long as you fast more than the law requires, then, then God's going to love you. The medieval Catholic Church had the same system. As long as you uh, go to confession and are baptized as an infant and um, uh, come to the Lord's Supper or to Mass, as long as you do good works and buy your way out of purgatory, you're going to be all right. And the end result is it has nothing to do with our hearts. It only has to do with outward performance. My friends, dead works of religion will not get you to heaven. You can be in a garage and it doesn't make you a car. You can be in a church and it doesn't make you a Christian. You can be here every day this church is open. You can get a key and come every other day. It will not save you. You can be the busiest little bee, but don't look to that for your salvation. The works of the law will not save us. Verse 16, but because works of the law, no one will be justified. This week I went to uh, get some gas and I went to put my credit card in the pump and it said um, error in ROM chip or something. I, I don't know what it said, but it, I put it in it didn't work. I put it in again it didn't work. You know, it did not matter how many times I put whichever credit card that was in my pocket into that machine, the currency would not work. Good works, morality, and religious activity, this is the wrong currency for salvation. God won't take it because there's something wrong with our currency. And the problem is much bigger than we could ever realize. This also means that the good news is much greater than we could ever realize. Because, see, the text says that no one will be justified by works of the law, but it doesn't leave us there. I love how Paul puts it here uh, in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He knew it. Okay? He knew it. And then you get this all-important word, so. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith and not 
by works of the law. So, so what are we going to do about it? There was a so as well in the the council of redemption before the foundation of the earth was laid when the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put out their plan, published it for the universe. This is what's going to happen. Sin's going to end the world, so I'm going to send my Son. And so shall we believe in Him in order to be justified, have our sins forgiven and declared righteous before Him. Our only hope in this life and the next is the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us in the cross. And we do not get what He did for us at the cross by trying hard, by earning our way there. It has happened in time and space history, and the only way that it is appropriated to us, the only way that it is applied to us, is by repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Christ Jesus, accepting as a gift that which has already happened, the forgiveness of our sins. Faith is the open hand that receives the gift of salvation. It is not a work. And Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9 tells that even the faith with which we believe on God is a gift. Because the secret is that He's already regenerated our heart and given us new hearts by the time we were exercising faith towards Him. Salvation is, is, is to and from and belongs to God through and through. It is His gift to His people. Paul had a lot to look to in his own life. If I've got X, I've got Y, I've got Z, I've done this, I've done that. Don't you remember in, in Philippians 3 when he goes to that long list of all that he had done, circumcised on the eighth day, as a zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, as to the law, blameless. What does he say? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung is the better translation, as dung. Y'all, we have nothing to bring to God and say, here God, I'm good, save me. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We cannot be saved by the works of the law. But what that is, and that's bad news. But the good news is that Christ has achieved our salvation on the cross. And all those who look to Him in faith and not by works will receive salvation and entrance into His eternal kingdom now and forever. This is what the Reformation was about. It wasn't a sideshow over minor things. It was over how is man saved? Does man save himself or does God save man? And my friends, our only hope is in what Christ has done. To those this morning who have never put their faith in Christ Jesus, who have never accepted what he has done for his people on the cross, may today be the day of great news for you. That you can stop trying to earn your way to heaven. That you can stop trying to make up for your past sins that you don't have to carry that baggage anymore of what you have done or what you have left undone. You don't have to be defined by your shame and by your record of guilt because Christ has taken that on Himself on the cross. And that's why we can read these great words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That you have crushed your sons for our iniquities. and That he has paid for our iniquities upon the cross. And that he went through hell, separation from you. That we who deserve to be separated might spend eternity with you. Drawn near to you, brought near to you by the blood of Jesus. We give you great praise this day. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Let's stand and finish our time together this morning as we sing of Christ, the church's one foundation from 277. Stand and sing. receive God's benediction upon you. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you until the day breaks and all these shadows flee away. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.